take off the children's worship that you would open your Bibles and that you'd grab your outlines from your uh, bulletin insert or bullet this morning, the insert that is there, as we move into week nine in our series that we've entitled Redeeming Ruth. Now, it is this week that we find ourselves centering on one verse in Ruth chapter three. So I'd ask as you're turning to Ruth, the Old Testament book of Ruth, that you would stand with me as we read, uh, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go to our key verse, which is verse 3 this morning. So stand with me as I read the Word of God this morning. This is what it says. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you, where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be willowing barley on the threshing floor. There's our verse for the day. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Let's ask for God's blessing this morning. Father God, we pray that your word would be living and active as you promise that it is. Lord, we pray that it would work in our lives this morning. Father, I pray that as we center our thoughts and our minds on your word this morning, that we would pull and be able to glean applications from it for our everyday life, that we would be a different people, that they would know, the world would know that we have been in your word this morning. So we thank you for your word, the living and active word of God, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Today we see Ruth in this story. As we've watched this story unfold for the last two months, we find ourselves learning about the preparation for Ruth's big date with Boaz, if you will. I don't know about you, but I remember my first date with Amanda. It was about 12 years ago, and I remember uh, with great affection, remembering getting ready and getting prepared. I remember I took an extra long time in the shower that afternoon, that it wasn't just a jump in the shower, two minutes and head out, but we wanted to make sure everything was clean. And then we went, and, and it wasn't just a shower, but we needed to make sure we had not only deodorant on and lots of it, but every young man needs a good dousing of some cologne, some terrible smelling fragrance. And I remember getting uh, hair just right when I had it, making sure I combed it for a guy that never used mousse, threw lots of mousse in there and made sure every hair was where it needed to be. Then it was time to find the right outfit. And I'm sad to say that finding the right outfit's difficult for a big guy like me, but we made sure we had just the right outfit, that everything would just be perfect. Then as I got my outfit on, I went into the car, and the car was a mess. And I said, you know, i got to clean the car. And what is that smell in the back seat? Found out what that smell was. We took care of it. I wanted everything to be perfect. I don't know about you, but presentation is everything when it comes to first impressions. You want to put your best foot forward, whether it's a first date, whether it's your first day on the job, whatever it may be, your desire should be that you will look and show yourself to be the best that you can be. Well, today in our text, as we continue to unfold this love story in the book of Ruth, we see Ruth beginning to prepare herself for her first date. She's advised by her loving uh, mother-in-law that uh, Naomi tells Ruth to get 
her, uh, get Ruth all put together. And Ruth is about to embark on a pursuit for a relationship with someone special. Now, this pursuit of finding someone special to find harmony with that one that we hope to be our lifelong partner become a phenomenon in the last 10 years. In fact, hundreds, even thousands of websites that you can go to where you can sign up, tell a little bit about who you are, and then they will come back and send you a list of people they believe that would work best for you. Now, there seems to be one, as I looked on the Internet, that is head and shoulders above the rest. In fact, this website boasts some incredible figures that I want to share with you. This website tells us that every day, 90 couples say yes to marriage through their matchmaking service. What that amounts to is what they're saying is 33,000 members a year find their mate. And what they do is this, they've pushed on this massive TV and internet campaign. And all they want to do is articulate how they do it and the success that they find. I want the guys to go ahead and play a clip and we'll get on with our message after this. Our video wasn't keeping up, it looks like, or they were doing a funky dance. But nonetheless, you've all seen that on television. In fact, I won't even uh, have the people stand, but we have some in our midst today who have used... uh, uh, websites like eHarmony to find the love of their life. And we're so glad that God was able to lead them in that way to find that. It seems that in our world today that we are seeking harmony with someone else. We want to find someone that we will, if you can, harmonize with that other individual. To find someone that we've always been looking for. But as I thought about that phenomenon of people, eHarmony has millions of people involved in their matchmaking services today. But I think we miss something in our world. And that is that we are so involved in a great and noble pursuit of finding the love of your life, which is noble. And I pray that everyone here who is seeking for that love would find it and that God would give them the desire of the heart. But amidst all that, we also need to understand that there is a greater relationship that needs harmony. And that is our relationship with God. So our text this morning is going to show us how a woman seeks to find harmony with a man she desires to know. And I want to pull three things from this. Now, we could pull three dating tips from Ruth 3.3. I don't want to do that this morning. I want to look at three applications at how we apply this text to our own relationship with God. So we're going to use this idea as a parallel to uh, this pursuit of harmony with Ruth and Boaz. So I want you to look again to your text this morning. And there are three things that we see this morning. The first thing that we see is that harmony with God starts with a cleansing that purifies Harmony with God begins or starts with a cleansing that purifies. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know, Tim, you talk week in and week out about how important my relationship with God is. You tell me that if I follow Christ and obey his commands, that there will be uh, a passion and then a desire for me to grow in my relationship with Christ, that there will be vitality, that there would be life in abundance. But I know there are some I've talked with you say, you know what, I don't have that vitality. I don't have that sense of love. God seems distant to me. He doesn't seem like he loves me. He doesn't seem to care for me. I'm having difficulty saying no to sin. I'm having 
uh, difficulty saying yes to the spiritual disciplines like praying and reading my Bible and involving myself in a local church. Why is that? Why is it that it doesn't seem to click? The first thing we see in our text is that it begins or starts with a cleansing that purifies. Look at the first word in our text this morning. It is the word wash. Jesus washed. Now, this first piece of information that Naomi gives is for Ruth to go and take a bath, to go cleaned up. And the heat literally means for the thorough cleansing of something or someone. So this word wash is something we can understand. But this isn't just a quick shower. This is a thorough clean. Now, why would that be so important? Why would this first command be so important for Ruth? Well, we know from history, of course, that the time when Naomi are living, that there's no showers, there's no uh, major uh, running water, and there's no ability to stay clean throughout the day while they probably have no hygiene probably were not as clean as we are today. We would probably see showers taken maybe once every three or four days on average as a result of that. So bathing was a rarity in that day. So there was no question that if Ruth is going to go meet the man of her dreams, then she needs to get cleaned up. She needs to go and wash. She's going to propose a lifelong relationship to this man, and it's important to get all the dust and the grime and any uh, odors that might be offensive to Boaz to get those taken care of. Now, this is junior high 101, right? Clean up, don't have body odor, let's move on. So how do we apply that to our lives today? Well, just like Ruth, if we want to have harmony with God, just as she wanted to have harmony with Boaz, there needs to be some cleaning that goes on in our lives. There needs to be a cleansing that takes place. Now, why would you say that we're dirty? Well, we're not dirty, if you will, physically. You could be as clean. You've taken a shower. You've got all the needed personal hygiene products on you to take care of everything. But it is our spirits that are dirty, the Bible says. The Bible makes it clear that we have fallen to a thing called sin. Now, some of this dirty um, nature of who we are begins with the contamination of the world. There's sin in the world, and as we walk through this life, we're going to take on different stains and different odors from that of the world. But we also know that this comes from our own sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. This sin creates a dirty spirit within us. And we cannot have harmony. You will not have harmony with God until you deal with that sin. Now, understand this. This is of key importance this morning. Boaz, if you will, has already fallen for Ruth. We know that Boaz has shown grace to Ruth. He's shown mercy to Ruth. He has given her everything that she needed in her day of living. It wasn't that Ruth had to clean herself up to receive grace. Ruth could do nothing as a foreigner, as a widow, as one who wandered in the fields looking for a handout. She could do nothing for Boaz. But Boaz shows grace. That is like our own salvation. We come and we're dirty. We come and we're poor. We come and we have nothing to give. There's nothing you can do. The book of Isaiah says that even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags before a holy God. There's nothing you can do to receive the grace and mercy of God. It has to be freely given. And God freely gave it to us in the way of salvation. But once we are saved, there is a cleansing, an ongoing cleaning that must take place. The 
Scripture is clear that there are important elements to it. And I want to look at it through the life of a man named David. So I want you to turn to the book of Psalms this morning. We're going to find ourselves, first of all, in Psalm 32. Psalm 32. We know that there is an example of a man who had an incredible relationship with God. This guy was said to have had a uh, heart after God and God alone. He was called a man after God's own heart. This guy had an awesome, vital relationship with God. But we learn throughout the story of David's life that something cataclysmic takes place and that relationship hits a major stop sign or dead end. If you know the story of David, you know David is the king of Israel. David had great uh, early exploits in his life. He was a shepherd boy, and as a shepherd boy, he had uh, tended the flock of his father, Jesse. And then we know that while he's visiting his uh, brother battlefield, that a man named Goliath stands before the nation of Israel, and he's taunting the people of God. And nobody wants to go out and fight this Goliath, and David says, I'll go. I'll go do it. And Saul says, all right, we'll put armor on you. He says, I don't want any armor. Walks out before David, uh, Goliath takes a couple stones from a brook, throws one in the sling, nails Goliath in the head. Goliath falls. David becomes a hero in Israel. We know at a later point that David is anointed to be the next king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. This guy has everything going for him. And all the exploits, the greatest king Israel has ever seen, and, and his renown is being made known to all the nations. And one day, while his army is off on a distant battlefield, we see that instead of going to bed, David finds himself walking around looking at his kingdom. His gaze falls upon a woman who is bathing on a rooftop nearby. He lusts after her. He says, I want to have her. I'm the king, so I can have her. And he takes her into his bedroom, and he sleeps with her. Now we've got a problem because Bathsheba comes back a couple months later and says, David, I'm pregnant and I'm going to have a baby. David says, oh my, what are we going to do about that? Because Bathsheba was married and her husband doesn't work out. Her husband is out on the battlefield. So how could Bathsheba have gotten pregnant if Uriah's out on the battlefield? You've got to have A and B together to make a C. They're not together. We've got to fix this. David says, all right, what do I do? He says, you know what? Bring Uriah back. He tries to play games with Uriah to have Uriah sleep with his wife. He won't do it because his friends and his other combatants are out on the field. He says, if they can't be with their wives, I won't be with my wife. David says, I've got a problem. What do I do? David says, all right, when you send him back, he sends a message with Uriah that he hand, Uriah hands to the commander-in-chief of the battlefield that says, put Uriah at the front of the line where he will surely die. He dies. And for a year, David remains silent. He doesn't say a thing. Now he has taken Bathsheba to be his wife because Uriah is no longer around. He's an adulterer, and he also has signed a letter of murder for Uriah. This guy's got a double major whammy going. A guy after God's own heart screws up big time. And look at what happens. For a year, there's no harmony with God. Look at what Psalm 32 tells us. In Psalm 32, verse 3, this is what's going on as David remains silent. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Does that sound like a man who's after God's own heart? Does that sound like a man who has harmony with God? No. Well, what is it that brought him to that point? Sin did. And there are some here today who have called them, who call themselves children of God, who have been baptized like our young friend Allie has this morning, and said, you know what, I'm a child of God, but there's nothing going on in my life. And the question you must ask this morning is, is there sin that is taking away all the vitality that God promises to bring? You hold sin in your life, you allow sin to be involved in your life, and you hold on to that and not ask for cleansing your life as a Christian will be nothing. In fact, it will become a burden as it did with David. So how do we fix it? It involves four key elements. First of all, we see that it involves a consciousness of our own depravity. I want you to turn for a moment to Psalm 51. If you're in Psalm 32, move a couple psalms over to Psalm 51. One year has gone by. David is completely depressed about his sin. He does not know what to do. The story tells us that one day a prophet comes. His name is Nathan. And, prophet, and this prophet comes, and I mean, this is tough business for a prophet. He's about to speak to a king who could order for Nathan to be killed. And Nathan walks into the throne room, and he begins to tell this incredible story about two farmers and their lambs. And one had a ton of lambs, and one had but one. And the story goes on, and you can read it in the Old Testament there. But what comes out is the story is told uh, David becomes so angry. He says, how could the rich man take the only lamb that that poor man had? And after all this interaction, he puts out his finger and he says, David, you're the man that has sinned. Because here he is, a king as all in the world. He goes to a poor man, Uriah, and takes his one wife, all that he had, and he took him. It took her without, his, without God and without anybody else's permission. And David is thrown for a loop. He doesn't know what to do. He's blown away. He can't believe it. He knows that God's hand of discipline is on him. Now look at what he says. This is so key. Uh, the first 13 verses of Psalm 51. Now look at what the context is. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now listen to what David says. The one that was having a burdensome relationship this is what he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. There's that cleaning and that cleansing we've been talking about. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you judge or when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a, a pure heart. O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. The first thing we do if we want to do a proper cleansing is to have a consciousness of our own depravity. 
Now look at what David says. David doesn't say, uh, you know what, it's, it's Billy's fault down the street because he told me that it's fun to go and, and sleep around, so that's why I did it. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, that's what all the other kings do, so that's what I'll do. He gets, becomes conscious that there's a depravity within him. Now he says that this is a constant battle within the flesh. In verse 5 it says it began within his mother's womb. Look at what it says. I was sinful at birth in my mother's womb where I was conceived. There was sin in my life. Folks, we carry the mark of sin the moment we are conceived in our mother's wombs. It is the doctrine we call of total depravity and original sin. You've heard that term before, original sin. That means in our mothers we carry the mark of sin. And and that mark of sin, please hear me this morning, it is of great importance. That mark of sin in your mother's womb is enough apart from the grace of God to send every one of us to hell. We don't even have to come out of our mother's womb and we are sinful enough to be condemned to hell apart from the grace of God. That's important for us to remember because it isn't that we just walk out and we start making mistakes. This original sin is a mark on our lives. Now, it leads to this idea of depravity. Now, what, is, what do I mean by this term depravity? What it means is, is that we are sinful. This depravity affects all aspects of our mind, affects our emotions, it affects our intellect, our bodies, the way we do things. Everything is affected. It is totally affected by all that we do. It wages a war for us to pursue not the things of God, but the things of the flesh, the things of this world. Instead of saying yes to God, we say yes to everything else. Now, how does that involve us in our day, in our thinking? Understand this, that we are not as bad as we could be. You sit there and say, well, I'm not totally depraved because I'm not as bad as Hitler or Osama bin Laden or uh, an Al-Qaeda network uh, crony or Stalin or any of the terrible people that we've seen in our world today. I'm not as bad as that guy that went on that shooting spree at Virginia Tech. No, total depravity does not mean you will be as bad as you could be. But understand this, what it means is that you have every tendency to fall to every sin imaginable. Have you ever wondered when someone has done something that you've walked around as a Christian, you say, well, that's a good Christian there, and something terrible happens in their life, whether it's adultery, whether it's some sort of fornication, whether it's some sort of uh, cheating that goes on, you say, well, how could they do that? That is the total depravity of man. Instead of following Christ, they allowed their tendency to sin to become their driving force instead of following their Savior. That's why I tell you, be very careful when you see someone fall to sin and say, I will never do that. The only way you will never do that is by the grace of Almighty God. That God would watch you and take care of you and move you in a way that you would not fall to that sin. Because we have that tendency. This doctrine is so important that sometime in the fall I'm going to do a six to eight week series out of one chapter in the book of Romans. Romans chapter one. And that is simply titled, Bad to the Bone. And if you get that down you're going to have a good understanding of who you are and your placement with God in heaven. We are bad. We don't just do bad things. We are bad to the core. And that is what David understands. He says, I am sinful at birth. The second thing we see is not only is he uh, understanding his depravity, but there's a confession of his disobedience. A confession of his disobedience. 
Now, David just doesn't sit there and say, well, I'm bad and my friends are bad and everybody's bad. There's nothing we can do about it, so we're just going to be bad. No, what he says is, all right, I've done something wrong. He uses some terms to say it is you alone who I've sinned against. He doesn't say, you know, uh, everybody's doing it, God, so I, I thought I could do it. Or, God, I'm the king, and the king gets to do whatever he wants, so that's why I did it. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, you, you know, you didn't see Bathsheba, God. She, she was pretty hot, and, and, and I, I, I lost my mind for a couple moments, and it was uh, temporary insanity. None of that is said. Now, we live in a world that says that. I fall to sin, I fall to adultery because my wife, you know, she doesn't take care of my needs. I, I cheated because my boss doesn't pay me enough. I didn't pay all my taxes. Why? Because, you know, the government wastes our money and we use terms to try to validate our sin. David doesn't do that. He confesses where he screwed up. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I've blown it. I need to start fixing something. He begins to confess his sin. He begins to share with God the wrong that he's done. He uses incredible language. He talks about transgressions, iniquities, sins, uh, and some other terms within there to explain. He is graphic about what his sin has done. There's a third thing we see, and it's not just a confession of our disobedience, but there's a change in our direction. He doesn't just say, all right, I, I went to uh, the father over at the local Catholic church. I sat in the confessional. I told him what I did. And then, you know, he tells me to do a couple of things. But you know what? It's off my chest. I'm ready to move on. That's not what happens. What happens is, is there's a change in his direction. In verse 10, look at what it says in verse 10 of Psalm 51. He speaks and asks God for a new disposition. He asks for a heart transplant. He says, you know what, God? If you don't do something in my life, I'm going to run into that problem again. So create in me a clean heart. Change me so that I don't sin in that way again. Now, it doesn't mean that God just sits there and goes... You know, abracadabra, and it changes. But God uses the obedience of the believer to begin to move us from falling to the sins of our youth and move us to f uh, follow Christ in times of temptation. He says, I need a change. When we confess our sins, there must be an aspect of repentance as well if we want cleansing. We can't say, you know, as my four-and-a-half-year-old son says, anytime he screws up and we say, Noah, why did you do that? I, I don't know. Well, okay, you understand this is wrong? Yeah, I understand that. I'm sorry and he thinks it's all done. I'm sorry. And then he'll give his little uh, doggy eyes to us. You know, I'm sorry, Mommy. I'm sorry, Daddy. That's not enough. That's a start. But it's not enough for the Christian. It's not enough just to say, I'm sorry. There has to be a change. David changes. He says, I want a different heart. I want to live a different way. And instead of going that way towards sin again, I want to go to righteousness. The child of God who wants a, must go beyond confession to a change in their direction. Finally, we see that it involves a celebration of our deliverance. A celebration of our deliverance. Once David does this change of directions, he begins to celebrate. He uses words about uh, this restoring of his salvation. He says in verse 13 that he desires for the celebration to spill over to others. He says, I blew it, and now you've forgiven me. And I so what do I want to do with that? I want to go tell others about what you've done in my life. 
That's what David says. I want to change the world because I've been changed. Because God has forgiven me. I want to share the grace and mercy of God. That's a cleansing that takes place. We live in a world that says, just say you're sorry and move on. Folks, that's not good enough. God wants us to wash. As Naomi told Ruth to wash, so God wants to wash if we want harmony with him. There's a second point this morning. And that is, is that harmony with God is sustained. It is sustained through a consecration that is personal. Now look back in our verse at Ruth. That's where we're going to be uh, for a little while. Ruth, it tells us that Naomi goes to Ruth and says, wash, and then she uses the term in the NIV Bible, perfume yourself. Other translations may use the term, anoint yourself with oil or with perfumes. This is yet another step after the washing takes place. After she's gotten a thorough bathing taken care of, she is to put on this second step, in the cleansing process. Now this is different than cologne or perfume that we would wear. What it literally would be, it would be going into your kitchen, grabbing a bottle of olive oil, pouring it over your head from head to toe, and rubbing it all down all over your body. That is what Ruth would have done. Now you sit there and I see some faces going, that is just gross. And, and yes, in our modern day thinking, that probably is. But what would that do? couple things. Number one, we know that people were always dusty in that day. Dust was prevalent in their society. So what would this do? One, this would create a barrier for the dust not to uh, stick to the skin. The second thing it would do would allow the skin to glisten. It literally tightens up the skin so Ruth would get rid of any unsightly wrinkles or blemishes. And it would allow her face to glisten. Now she'd put it on her hair and she would do that to be able to style her hair because her hair then would become nice and greasy and able to be moved this way or that way. It was a BC form of mousse, if you will. Okay? So she gets her hair all done the way he wants to, all slicked back. She, she's all ready to go. She's glistening. And yet in this oil, it's not a non-fragrant oil, but there was fragrances within it. So it would create a smell. That would be, uh, to Boaz, would be something that would be welcoming, that he would sit there and say, well, you smell great today, Ruth. This is wonderful. This is what's going on. Now, why is this so important? For the believer, anointing is important to understand. First of all, we see in the Bible that anointing was used, first of all, for common purposes. Ruth is using this to beautify herself. She's putting this stuff on to change the way she looks. That's the common purpose for anointing yourself with oil. And it was a common purpose that was used in that day. But there's a second aspect that we see, and that anointing of oil, the same kind of process was used for ceremonial practices as well. We see when uh, priests were ordained, we see when kings were uh, anointed to become the kings of Israel, that there was an anointing that took place. Remember David? When he's anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel. What does that anointing do? What it does is it says, we are going to do this to set you apart for something of great significance. You're not going to be like everybody else. You're going to be different because you have been set apart for something else. One of the commentaries, the favorite commentary I have of the book of Ruth by a man named Hubbard speaks of this. And I didn't see it in any other commentaries, but I trust what he has to say. He says that only two individuals, all of Scripture, 
had those twofold reasons for being anointed with oil. Ruth and Jesus Christ, when he was anointed with oil in the home of his disciples. And he says that two things happened. One, it was done to wash the feet of Jesus and to clean them. But two, it was also to set him apart as the King of Kings and the Messiah that was going to come. Who's the other one? Hubbard says it was Ruth. It was Ruth. Why? Because Ruth was using it for a common purpose, but also she was setting herself apart to be something used by God. We know that Ruth was nothing big. She was a mediocre individual from a poor uh, family because of being a widow. We know she's a foreigner, and yet God uses her, which we'll learn in Ruth chapter 4, to be a great-great-grandparent of um, David, King David, and then to be even a great ancestor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She's being set apart. Now, how does this anointing, this anointing with oil, involve us as Christians today? There is a great importance for us to be set apart. And that setting apart involves two. First of all, it involves our common purposes in life. Meaning, when we are set apart, it doesn't just happen here in church, but it happens in every aspect, in the common things of the day. People should see that there's something different about you. Today I have a couple of my own employees here from the catering that are here, and, and I hope that they don't sit there and say, oh, wait a minute, Tim, Tim is different when he's behind the grill, and, and, and now I see a totally different boss. He's different now. I would hope that they would say, yep, that's the same guy we see on Monday through Saturday that we're watching today on Sunday. Do people see that? Are you set apart that people smell the fragrance of Christ? They see the glistening of Christ all around you as you anoint yourself because there is a not only a common purpose, but there's a ceremonial practice. And what that involves is that you've been set apart. You are a king, a priest unto Christ. You have been set apart to be not one of this world, but you are an alien and stranger sojourning in this thing called the world. You are light. You are a holy people, a chosen nation, a people belonging to God. You have been set apart church of village you have been set apart by god himself for a practice and a purpose that's different than anything in this world ruth puts on this anointing and it changes who she is and it is seen by those around her third point this morning the third thing we see is that it doesn't just involve this anointing but we see next that it also involves uh, seeing uh, harmony with God is shown through clothing that is proper. It is seen through the clothing that she wears. Now look at what the text says in verse 3. Naomi says to Ruth, she says, Wash and perfume yourself or anoint yourself and then put on your best clothes. We see that it involved clothing. If she wanted to have harmony with Boaz, then she would have to have the right clothes. Now, we see in the text that Ruth has a lot of different clothes that she's worn. Like any woman, she's got a vast wardrobe. The first, I heard a good laugh on that one. The first, the first, uh, first garment that we see in her life is the garment of a widow. We know from the text in Ruth chapter 1 that Ruth is a widow. Her husband, Malon, has died. And we know that as she comes into Bethlehem, she is marked as a widow. What would have done that? In Middle Eastern culture, a widow, for a period of time, will wear clothing that signify that she was a widow. Whether it was some sort of sash, whether it was a, a, a veil, whether it was a garment that she wore, something would signify that. Now, coming from a Middle Eastern culture... 
I have seen women who have lost their husband, who for a period of time have been called the widow and have worn widow garments. And many times in the Assyrian culture, it was a veil of some sort that would say, I a time of mourning. And that widow would not go anywhere for a period of time that would have any of joy. This past uh, uh, couple months, uh, just a month and a half ago, we had a family uh, member of ours, a cousin of my dad's, who came from Iraq, has been moved out of Iraq, and has come to America. And she married her husband in Toronto, Toronto, Canada. And what happened was, is we had my uncle, Bob, who passed away. His wife, who is close to this family member, could not go to the wedding for one reason, and that was she was grieving the loss of her husband. We don't grow like that in America, do we? He could not go to a place of joy because there is a season in her life where her calling is to grieve. That's the context that we see in Ruth's day. There was a season. We don't know whether it was 40 days or, or 10 years. We don't know how long it was, but there was a season that she was a widow. Now, we know that when she comes to Bethlehem, she takes on, puts on a new pair of clothes. We know that she comes into Bethlehem and she enters into the field of Boaz and she begins to glean. Now, commentaries tell us that there would have been a certain attire that would have been proper for the gleaning process. Gleaning would have meant that you would have had to have your clothes close to you. So it probably would have had some sort of belt around, uh, some sort of moo-moo, if you will, if you know what that means, an outer garment. And you would put a belt around it. You would have other aspects to it where you would be able to put tools around it. This was not what a woman would normally wear. But she was called to wear it because she was working. But now we see that's not what Naomi's talking about. Naomi says, put on your best clothes. Amanda has a lot of clothes in her closet. And that's no joke. A lot of clothes. I do too. I love clothes. But I know you love them too because you don't want me up here with clothes. Anyway, hey, I heard amen on that and I saw people running for vomit bags. All right. Amanda has a lot of clothes, and there are certain clothes that are nice. They're nice clothes. They're for everyday use. But there's a part in our closet where there are clothes and there are clothes. The clothes that when she comes down the stairwell and says, honey, I'm ready, I say, where are we going? What are we doing? Wait a minute. What's happening here? And I get all foggy. Those are the best clothes. And I'm sure you as women have clothes and you have the best clothes. I don't know if it was some Versace dress or something by uh, that Wang chick that all the Academy Award dresses. I don't know what it was, but it was her best clothes. I want to speak for a moment very quickly on the idea of modesty. And the idea of modesty, this is a hot debate within our world today, especially amongst Christians. And this question has come up numerous times for us as a church. Where is the line on modesty? And I want to tell you this. I, when people ask me about the idea of modesty and what is right to wear and not right to wear, I tell them, I don't know where the line is, but I'll know it when you've crossed it. There is no line where it says, all right, anything below or above the knee or anything that has cut off for you as men or showing your pectoral muscles, there is no line. The Scripture does not give a line for it. But I want you young people and old people alike, because we struggle with modesty as well, to ask this question. Does my clothing honor God? You ask that question and you allow God to work in your heart and your mind and you say, what is my clothing saying? Now you say, Tim, how do you get into a subject of modesty on clothing? Let me tell you how. Because she puts on the clothes 
for an appropriate reason. She says, I'm not going to wear this garment or this garment. That's not appropriate. I'm going to put on this one. Why? Because she wanted to attract a man to her. We do that. We put on nice clothes to attract ourselves to other people. Now, we need to be very careful because the script makes it clear that her clothing was not that of a harlot. There's Hebrew words for the clothing of a harlot, for the clothing of a prostitute. Nowhere in the scriptures, in the Hebrew of, uh, Hebrew, uh, of Ruth chapter 3, is there any mention that she was wearing anything that was revealing or any sexual type connotation that comes with it. In fact, Boaz on that night says, you are truly a woman of noble character. I'm not telling you not to be fashionable. I'm not telling you to wear uh, the clothes that, that maybe some of the kids at school are wearing. But I want you to ask the question, is it honoring God? Is it honoring God? And is it telling the world what I want it to do? Because she was wearing clothes that would tell Boaz that she wasn't a widow anymore. She wasn't a worker anymore. But she came with the garments of a woman. She says, I'm going to show you who I am. Not as a widow, not as a worker, but a woman. You know clothing defines who you are? I don't know if you know that or not. Clothing defines who you are. It defines tensions are. It defines what your goals are. And we can wear clothes. We can wear clothes that, that say, I want to be uh, number one in the corporate world. But if I go to the corporate world and I'm wearing a bunch of cut-off pants and, and uh, my shirt's cut off at the sleeves and, and it's got a hole in it, I can assure you, if I go as a business individual to that corporate world, they're going to say, you know what, I don't care what you cook, get out of here. You're not dressed appropriately. So what do we do? We make sure that in right occasions we're wearing the right clothing. Yesterday I was doing a lot of grilling, and I wasn't wearing this. It's not appropriate to wear this. I wore something that was appropriate for that day. Make sure that what you wear is appropriate for what you're trying to say. I know that's hard for young women in our place that see their friends wearing all different kinds of things. But understand this. Wear what is appropriate. Be attractive. Be attractive. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't be saying something with your clothing that dishonors God. I'm off my soapbox. How does that work for us as Christians? Very quickly. We, too, have gone through a garment change. The Bible makes it very clear in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, that we have taken off the clothings of a sinner and put on clothing of a saint. He makes it clear that our lives should be something different by not just the physical clothes that we wear, but by the spiritual as well. If you can, turn in your Bibles to Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians, chapter 3. In verse 9, we're going to see what Paul is saying in verse 5. It says, first of all, let you guys get there for a moment. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Here we go. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language your lips. Listen to what it says. Do not lie to each other. Why, Paul? Since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Do you notice the clothes metaphor there? You have taken these things off. There are people here today who have all kinds of garments on, garments of sin. And we all carry them. All of us have them. 
But Jesus, or, but, but Paul tells us, you've got to take those off and put something else on. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, take off those dirty garments, the things of immorality, the things of sin. And in verse 12 he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dear love, look at what he says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You know, we're carrying around a lot of dirty garments in our lives. And we're struggling because our clothing isn't who we want to portray. But we're a sinful people. What are we to do with that? How are we to change the garments? In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, my, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Zechariah 3 gives us a heavenly scene where Joshua the high priest stands in the presence of God. And not only Joshua, the high priest, and God are there, but we are told that the devil is there accusing Joshua because he's wearing dirty garments that came from his sin. And he stands there, dirty before the Lord, because of the sin of not only him, but also of his people. And he stands there all dirty. And he's embarrassed, I'm sure, and he's, and he's wondering, how can I stand here with such dirty garments? And God doesn't say, I'm done with you, Joshua. God doesn't say, who do you think you are, Joshua, for wearing garments in my presence? God doesn't say, you better fix that on your own. You know what he says? And this is wonderful, because in the book of Zechariah, Jesus hasn't been born yet, but we see a phrase that we know Jesus is present. It says, then the angel of the Lord said. The angel of the Lord is a uh, what they call a theophanies. I hope I pronounced that right, a theophanies that talks about the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is an appearing of Jesus before he arrived in Bethlehem. And Jesus says to Joshua and the angels around him, he says, angels, you take those garments off him and you put a clean turban on his head. You put a new robe around him, one that is white, full of brilliance. And I will tell you what, that is what happens when we enter the presence of God with sin. God doesn't sit there and say, who do you think you are? You can't come in here. What he does is says, we've got a dirty problem here. Let's fix it. And he comes in and he takes off our garments that are of sin and he puts on garments of righteousness. And that's what he desires. God doesn't want to sit there and just point out your sin and say, you can't do anything about it. You're sinful. Now you're done. He says, let's get you fixed up. Let's get that taken care of. And he puts garments of praise, the psalmist says, on us so that we can glorify God. The fourth thing we see this morning is this. This is the application. Because we've spoken harmony with God. Yes, it involves a cleansing. Yes, it involves a being set apart, a consecrated clothing that shows what we are doing and our intentions within the world. But it involves one more thing. And here's, here's it. This is what happens on Monday morning. This is what you should carry home. How do I find harmony with God? That should be your question. How do I get there, Tim? The answer is found. It is set in motion through a uh, proper procedure, a certain procedure. It is set in motion through a certain procedure. The practice, the procedure is twofold. First of all, we see that Ruth is told by Naomi that she is to get as close as she can to Boaz. Go to the threshing floor. Go where Boaz is at. It also says that he, she is to make her way and lie at his feet. Get close to him. That's what she's commanded to do. That gives us something of great importance. We are to draw near to our master. It involves drawing near to our master. You want to have harmony with God? Then get to God as quickly as possible and stick to him like glue. I mean, when you, if you want harmony with God, you never have it. Just like Ruth would have never had a relationship with Boaz unless she got up 
headed to where Boaz was at and sat down next to him. It would have never happened without that taking place. You will never have harmony with God if you don't get up, turn away from the things of this world, and follow Christ. James tells the people of God, he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. That's the promise. The promise is if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. It it won't be like me at the junior high dance. When I walk towards a young lady, they would walk away. All right. When I draw near to God, he promises that he's going to draw near to me. I don't have to worry about him running away from me, no matter how sinful I may be. Wherever you're at this morning, if you draw near to God, I will promise you this. God will draw near to you, no matter what you've done in your life. It involves drawing near to the master. Finally, it also involves doing what the master says. It involves doing what the master says. You want to have harmony with God? Ruth is told by Naomi that she is going to be commanded by Boaz to do certain things. And her phrase, she says, I believe in verse 4, is do whatever he commands of you. You know where we make it when we find harmony with God is when God says, all right, Tim, you've drawn near to me. I can't just draw near to God and say, God, we're going to hang out. Let's just do this. And he says, no, Tim, to draw near to me, to stay close to me, that means you've got to get rid of this. You've got to get rid of that. Tim, you've got to stop thinking that way. You've got to stop doing things that way. Turn and become like me. And my job is to do what he says. Are you doing what the master says? There are people here today, I am positive of it, who say, I want harmony with God. But I will tell you again, and please get it through your skulls this morning, as it's been penetrating in my own this morning. We can't get harmony with God without doing what God says. You cannot have harmony with the God of the heaven if you're not doing what the God of the heaven has commanded for us to do. Now, that seems dogmatic, that seems legalistic, but the grace of it is is that if we do that, there's grace. We don't have to try to clean ourselves up. We can't do it on our own, but God can. He can clean us up, and He promises to. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. Not maybe, not sometimes, not if you haven't done any of the grievous ones, but God is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close our time this morning. And I want to give us an opportunity this morning. We haven't done this for a while, but I want to invite you this morning. If you are not at a place where you sense that you are in harmony with God, I want you to have the opportunity this morning to come and to pray. Now you say, why do I have to come forward and pray? I'm not going to ask you your name. I'm not going to ask you to say anything. Just quietly come up and say, I want to get right with God. I want to make right. And that might involve some confessing. That might might involve taking some things off, some garments of sin off of your life and placing them at the feet of Jesus. While we sing this song, I want opportunity for people to come. Now, if you want to pray with someone, I'm going to ask the elders to come and sit in the front pews here. And if you want to pray with someone this morning, just tap them on the shoulder and say, would you pray with me? So if the elders could come forward and just make their way to the front pew, if you want to pray. It is time for the people of Village Bible Church to find harmony with God. And the great promise that we are given this morning is that we can find harmony with God. And that harmony with God is found through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So I invite you. I would hope that this place would be filled with people this morning who say, Today, on July 15th, I want a new relationship with Jesus Christ. 
just as our friend Allie came forward and says, I want to be like Jesus in baptism, so we ought to be like Jesus in the confession of our sin before Almighty God. So I'm going to open up the stage, worship team, lead us in a song, and then we'll close our time.